Now as we move forward to the Scripture reading, to God's holy people in Mill Creek, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 1, 1 to 11. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once, when he was eating with them, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into the heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he'll return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Thank you, man. Good morning. Thank you so much, Johnny. What a great word. Appreciate that, man. Uh, great to see you all. Uh, if you're new here or watching online for the first time, my name is James and one of the pastors here. And, uh, Shannon, thank you again for last week being able to step in. Uh, Sarah and I were, were out of town at a pastor's conference thing where we're working with uh, some coaches and other people on investing in marriage and long-term fruitfulness. And it was an amazing time. Thank you for praying for us. But Shannon, thank you for an incredible word last week on the church and, and for stepping in for that. So as we head back into Acts again this week, uh, a question to start with, and that is, have you ever been absolutely convinced of something that you later found out wasn't true or that you were wrong about? Uh, we see this happening with the disciples many times in the scriptures, and it's going to happen a few times here in the book of Acts. And so it's something that probably happens to us a lot more than we care to admit to it. There's an old test I used to love giving to our, our Bible school students back in South Africa as we're talking about observation. And I'm going to put this thing up in just a second. And what I want to do is going to be three triangles. Just read. We're going to read through them out loud together in just one quick time together. Just read through the words of the, translator, the, the, the triangles. Throw it up. So we say, Paris in the spring, bird in the hand, once in a lifetime. You can put it away. So as you read through that, some of you may think, what's the big deal? It's just words in a triangle. Let's read through it again one more time. Paris in the spring, bird in the hand, once in a lifetime. You can put that away. So raise your hand if you saw something radically wrong with those sentences. We've got maybe a few hands up. I mean, that's like less than 10% of the room. All right, let's do it a couple more times. We're going to put it back up. Read it again, this time more carefully. Paris in the spring, bird in the hand, once in a lifetime. You can put it away. Anyone else see what's radically wrong with these sentences? we got a few more hands. So now maybe like a quarter of the room sees it. Let's do it again. Let's do it slower this time. Again, up. Paris in the spring. Bird in the hand. Once in a lifetime. Anyone else seeing something going on? 
we're maybe at a third of the room right now, right? So here, I'll help you guys out, because I even threw this, you can throw it back up there. I gave this to Shannon this week and just said, is this too cheesy for me to start with and talk about how we can often not see things? And after like three minutes of looking at it, he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And uh, he says, I know there's something wrong with this. I, you're telling me there's something wrong with this. I just can't see it. And he's like, you got to help me out here. And so I'm like, let's read it together. Paris in the the spring. Ah, there it is, right? We recognize this too. Bird in the the hand once in a, a lifetime. So why do I show this? Because it's like this cheesy little thing because our brains literally don't want to see it. They don't want to see the problem. And so it tells us just to look right past it. And we can do this in silly ways like this. And we can look at something a thousand times. I could just have you just leave that up there. And many of you, I mean, well, about a third of this room eventually saw it before I pointed it out. And no matter how many times you look at it, your brain is just going to keep scooting on right by because it doesn't want to see that, doesn't process that. In the same way, we can do, like with this cheesy illustration, we can look at it tons of times. There's so many other ways in which we do the exact same thing. In fact, there's this, we can remember things differently than where they actually occurred as well. There's this thing called the Mandela effect about how you can, as a group of people, you can convince yourself something is true. And so an example of this, we have a few. Um, anyone grew up reading the Bernstein Bears? Right? I grew up, in fact, the very first book I ever read was called The Bee Book. In fact, I memorized it, was so proud to read it to my mom, and I didn't even look at it, I just memorized it and recited it, because I could memorize it faster than I could read. So I have a deep affinity for the Berenstein Bears, and I learned a couple years ago, Berenstein Bears don't exist. Um, if anyone doesn't know that, if they're actually called the Bernstein Bears. Um, that's the actual, the correct spelling, and that blew my mind, as this was a part of my childhood I learned I was wrong about. Or does anyone eat Jiffy peanut butter? right, as your favorite form of peanut butter. If you do, you're a liar, because it doesn't exist. There's no such thing as Jiffy peanut butter. There is Jif peanut butter. I didn't know that. Jiffy doesn't exist. It's a combination of Skippy and Jif that we've put together in our minds. Or does anyone eat, remember growing up eating Oscar Mayer hot dogs, right, or singing the Oscar Mayer Wiener song, right? Again, doesn't exist. It's actually Oscar Mayer with an A. Who knew? And so that's... <laughs> <laughs> pick up that audio. Someone was rather surprised. Uh, you can look it up. So oh, this, we do the same thing with famous lines from movies, the most famous of all being Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker, right? Where, Luke, where Darth Vader says, Luke, I am your father, right? And the reality is he never said it. He says, no, I am your father. Or another example, anyone seen Snow White, where the, the wicked witch speaks to the mirror and says, mirror, mirror on the wall. Actually, it's not what she says. She says, magic mirror. I, someone knows it right over here. Magic mirror on the wall. I actually had to go back and look at that one up to see about it. And again, there's so many of these things that we just collectively remember wrong because it's what we've heard so many times that we even have the wrong memory of it. But lastly, did you know that in the movie Forrest Gump, Forrest Gump doesn't actually say life is like a box of chocolates. It's not there. Go watch it. It's not actually what he says. So there's so many places we do this, and often it's with trivial things. And, and things that we're convinced of that we find out are, are really not that way. And usually the consequences isn't a big deal. We can just laugh it off and say, oh, that's kind of silly. There's no greater impact. But when it comes to Scripture, well, we do the same thing with the person of Jesus. And we hold on to beliefs because it's what we grew up hearing or what we saw or what our brain didn't want to see. The, the, the consequences are significantly larger. I used to do this while teaching Genesis regularly. I used to have a, a ministry for years. I just spent traveling the world working with pastors groups and training pastors in remote places around the globe. And regularly when I was teaching through Genesis, I would do this, uh, and I would ask the question as we're beginning. I'd say, where was Adam when Eve sinned? Across the room, whether it's 10 people or 100 pastors, every person almost would say, he wasn't with her, we don't know where he was. 
right? But they'd say he wasn't there. I'd say, where was he? They'd, we don't know. He wasn't with her. Like, and, and that's because every single person had grown up being told that Eve was the first person to sin and she was responsible for it. And therefore, we don't know where Adam was, but he wasn't with her. And so then I would take in the Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, and we would read it out as a whole group that says, so she took some of its fruit and ate it, also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then I'd ask again, where was the husband? Almost every single time, 90 to 5 plus percent of the times, every single person in the room says, we don't know. Like, but again, let's read it again. We'd read it again, just like we those triangles. And maybe one guy would raise their head and said he was with her. And everyone would go, no, he wasn't. And then we would do it, we'd read it again. And I'd read it really slowly, super slowly. And still, like only a third of the room, just like we just did, would actually see it, even after we read it three or four times. Why didn't they see it? Because we don't want to. It's not what we grew up believing. It's not our understanding. It doesn't fit in our theological box. And then finally, I'd point it out to him, and everyone would laugh and go, oh, it's so silly. Because as though it's just kind of a, a funny little thing. But the reality is that's a really significant thing. Right? That's a very significant piece to grow up believing that, that Eve was fully responsible to sin and Adam was nowhere to be found. And then learn that actually you're completely wrong. Adam was right there with her in that moment. Right? That's massive. And so... There could be huge implications when it comes to Scripture. And so today, the focus of our, our message is going to be on Jesus empowering his disciples to be the witnesses. In fact, as we continue the next couple of weeks. But today, I want to look at a couple examples of how easy it is to miss the things that are right in front of us. And so right off as we get into this passage today, I want to show where this happened to me this week. Uh, where I was completely missed something that was plain and obvious in the text, and where I've been missing it for years, and even taught it here in front of you a couple weeks ago, and a few weeks ago, and a couple years ago, and I've taught it many times in a verse I've quoted many times. And so this is a passage I've taught, I mean, I don't know, maybe 30 times I've probably taught through this passage. I've read it hundreds of times, it's not over a thousand times, and where I've missed what is plain and obvious in the text. And so it comes out of Acts chapter 1, verse 2. We read this a couple weeks ago. Everything Jesus began to do and teach, it talks about until the day he was taken up to heaven, and here it is, after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. So I often quote this passage, as I did just a couple weeks ago, in talking about how Jesus, one of the many examples of how Jesus relates through the Holy Spirit, how he relies upon the Holy Spirit for all of his ministry. I did a whole series on this at Christmas, looking at the incarnation of Jesus and, and how Jesus laid down his divine privileges and all that he did, so that everything, all the things he did were through the power of the Holy Spirit. You probably remember me teaching on that. It's still true. I'm not, don't worry. I'm not saying that was all a lie. Um, but as I was reading this, and I quote this passage as one of the many, many passages that I use to emphasize that point. But this week, as I was reading it again and, and, and reading through it some more, it was the first time I realized that I'd been reading the passage completely wrong. See, this passage is not referring to what Jesus did with his removing of his divine privileges like everything else, because this is after the resurrection. After the resurrection, Jesus has no longer laying down his divine privileges. After the resurrection, Jesus is no longer limited in any way, shape, or form. He has all of his divine power, all of it at his disposal. He is in his glorified eternal body, and with all his infinite knowledge and power, the same power that spoke the world into existence, and yet... He still chooses to teach through the power of the Holy Spirit and not of his own power. This was mind-blowing to me. I mean, I've read this hundreds of times, taught it so many times, and somehow I've never seen what is clear and obvious in the text. Why? Because I had heard it taught that way many years ago. And so when my brain reads it, it just reads according to what it had heard before. And no matter how many times I read it or teach it, it just fits into that box that I had about this that I had already formed. 
So the first thing I couldn't believe is that when I did this was how I've never noticed it and how I've been reading it wrong for years, but then I was more blown away by the implications of it. That Jesus continued to rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit even when he didn't need to. I mean, how cool is that? He could have just done it all himself, of his own idea, of his own power, because he was all-knowing, but he chose not to. He chose to work through the power of the Holy Spirit. He continued to be dependent upon the Father through the Holy Spirit. I love that. Even in all his glory and power, he relies upon the Holy Spirit in his teachings and his actions, even when it wasn't required of him. And to me, that's such a cool example that he sets for us. And so I'm humbled yet again as I read this, seeing that I've been wrong about this passage for many years that I love to quote so much. I've also been humbled and being reminded again and again and knowing there's probably many other places where the same thing is happening where I'm seeing it wrong. Where I'm using lenses from growing up of what I was taught and prejudices or where I'm allowing my, my, my boxes and my, of doctrine and theology to define things for me that actually aren't exactly what the text says. One of my favorite scholars that I've read, he's uh, got a, I mean, multiple PhDs in theology, and he's at the, the, the senior years of his life. He said, after a lifetime of studying the scriptures, he says, I'm pretty sure my theology is about 90% correct. <laughs> he goes, the problem is I don't know what 10% it is that's left out there. <laughs> he goes, that's for you guys to decide. Um, and so I'm humbled, yet also amazingly grateful for, in, in awe of how amazing God is. And I love to learn where I'm wrong and where I grow or where I've misunderstood things, especially places like this where it's not trivial, where it's significant. Or, or for years, I remember in my Bible school, when I did it years ago, of recognizing the emphasis upon the poor in the Old Testament. I remember going through the book of Isaiah and finally getting towards the end and just breaking down in tears when I'm looking at God's caring for the poor. And I realized, how is it that I've been a missionary for all these years and done all this kind of stuff, and yet the poor have never been a focus of my ministry when I see there is nothing that God cares more about? Than the poor. It just blew my mind as God began to reshape stuff in my own heart and mind as I read through his scriptures and read the words of Jesus, read through the prophets. And so, so why does this matter then so much about this part about Jesus relying upon the Holy Spirit? And that's because this is what Acts is all about. This book is about the church relying on the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit as they are witnesses to the world. And Jesus begins by demonstrating that while fully human, and he continues to demonstrate it even while in his resurrected body. What an amazing example for us today. And that feeds right into the next verse, where he says this, verse 3, During the 40 days after he suffered and died, Jesus appeared to the apostles from time to time. And he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once, when he was eating with them, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. So we learned that after Jesus was raised from the dead, for 40 days he hung out with his disciples, and the main thing he's teaching them is about the kingdom of God here. Now, this shouldn't come as a surprise, because this is pretty much everything Jesus talked about his entire life, was the kingdom of God. And then he's speaking about the eternal kingdom of heaven that, that begins now and goes on into eternity, that it's not about earthly power, but about heaven coming to earth. And it, it just probably carries a lot more weight in these last 40 days because he just died and resurrected, so they're probably a little more active, keen listeners than they were previously. And so then it tells us that he commanded his disciples to leave the city of Jerusalem until they received the promised gift of the Father. And, and what is that gift that they're going to receive? Well, it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to be talking a lot more about the baptism of the Holy Spirit going forward because this book talks a lot about that. Um, 
But Jesus tells them to do nothing until they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because he doesn't want them to do anything of their own power. Because nothing he's asking them to do can they do in their own power. They need to be empowered by his spirit to do it. And so he says, wait until I send my Holy Spirit in his power. And then we get to one of the most amazing verses in Acts. And and, and not really amazing in a good way. Because that's all awesome about the power of the spirit stuff. And we're going to get to that in the coming weeks. But then it says this. And well, first to set the scene before we get there. The disciples at this point have walked with Jesus for three years, right? They've, they've heard everything that he's taught countless times. Everything there is to learn about the kingdom of God, they've heard Jesus describe it. If they had any doubts, they, they saw him crucified and then buried and then raised from the dead. And then if there are still any doubts, he spends another 40 days teaching them about his kingdom and all that it consists of. And this is with his glorified body that they're seeing all this miraculous thing. Like they should now fully believe what Jesus says. That Jesus came, as he describes, to establish his kingdom, which is unlike any earthly kingdom. That he came to bring heaven to earth. That he came to bring freedom to captives and and light to the darkness. That this is not an earthly kingdom like they're used to, but it's an upside-down kingdom from what they've understood. And that this kingdom, they are to love their enemies. And this kingdom, peacemakers and, and, and the poor in spirit and the meek and others like them are the blessed ones in this kingdom. Where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. So the disciples are gathered around Jesus on day 40 after the resurrection and they're looking to him and they ask this one question of Jesus right here at this point, Acts chapter 1 verse 6. So it says, when they had come together, they began asking him saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? What? Notice the language. So Jesus, now are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So so now are you going to give us our kingdom? They're asking, now it's time for our kingdom, right, Jesus? Now you're going to go destroy Rome and and wipe out all of our enemies. Now we get to go take over the world, right? I I mean, we get all that eternal kingdom stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. And blessed are the peacemakers stuff and turn the other cheek stuff and, and lay down your life for your enemy stuff. I mean, that's all well and good, But now you're going to go to destroy our enemies and wipe out Rome, right, God? Now we get to sit on your right and on your left in your glorious throne. What? Now, for historical context, if you've read the Old Testament, there are so many prophecies about the restoration of Israel. The Jewish people have been holding on to these promises since they were exiled over 500 years ago. And and they've been waiting for one thing. One thing, the Messiah to come to wipe out their enemies and restore them to power. To restore Israel to be as powerful as it was under King David. That's what their hope had been. That is what their box of Messiah looked like. The elevation of their nation. Power and destruction of their enemies. That is how they understood the Messiah. And they kind of conveniently left out a lot of verses that said other things about that more nuanced. So we see this so many times with the disciples in their view of things. They didn't understand what Jesus was really about. His kingdom, the kingdom of God, made no sense to them. It didn't fit into their Messiah box, and so they just tossed it out. You see this in many places, like Mark chapter 10, verse 35, where it says this. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to Jesus. They said, teacher, we want you to do us a favor. Very bold of them. Jesus says, what is your request, Jesus asks They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right 
and one on your left. They were expecting Jesus to reign like King David. And they wanted the positions of power on his left and right. And you realize at this point, this is what they were really after. They wanted to be honored. They wanted power. They wanted to rule. They wanted their nation, the most powerful nation. Nothing Jesus ever said about him coming to do that, or sorry, nothing Jesus ever said about him not coming to do that, or ever penetrated their hearts in any way. They were completely blind to everything Jesus had said for three years. Or look at Luke at the Last Supper. Right after Jesus washes his disciples' feet, demonstrating that it's a life of sacrifice, saying, you need to now go do what I have done and humble yourself and serve one another. He then has them take communion, where he's literally offering them the bread and the wine as his blood and his body broken for him, saying, do this in remembrance of me. Right after that, he makes this statement. He says, one of you will betray me. And the very next verse, at this amazing ultimate example of sacrifice and humility anywhere in Scripture, the very next verse, verse 24, says this. Then they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. If your view of that Last Supper is just this holy moment, this is what's happening. The moment Jesus sets down the wine, this is what's happening. Did they get it? No. And this has been a pattern for the disciples. Jesus didn't fit into their box of their expectations of what Jesus the Messiah was supposed to do. And because their box was so rigid, they just kept stuffing Jesus into it, right? And forcing him in, even though everything he said and everything he did didn't fit into that box. And so here they are after 40 days of more teaching on his kingdom, and they asked Jesus, so now are you going to restore our kingdom? Now do we get to wipe out all of our enemies? Now do we get to reign with you? And you can see this is the real reason they've been following him. They knew that if they just hold on long enough, they would get what they really wanted. And Jesus' response to them is absolutely amazing. He doesn't even rebuke them. He's not discouraged. He lets them know that all those promises will happen in, in God's time and in the Father's hands. And he said, basically, don't worry about that. And he gives them this one last exhortation in verse 1-8. He says, but you will receive power. Here's the real power Jesus referred. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he tells them, you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit, what he had just been talking about earlier, and you'll be my witnesses across the earth. And then he just floats up into the clouds and ascends into heaven. I love it. He, he doesn't correct them. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't summarize his whole teaching. Go, whoa, let me give you a 30-minute summary of everything I've done for three years because you don't have a clue. After realizing they've understood nothing that he has said, he doesn't delay his flight home, right? He doesn't say, put a pause, put a rain check. Let me give me a couple more days just to set you straight because you're plan A. I don't got a plan B. Everything I do has to go through you right now. He just reminds them again the Holy Spirit is coming, and he floats away. As the disciples are left, there dumbfounded. I can imagine some of them thinking, so, so is that a yes then about destroying Rome, right, Jesus? Are, are you, you're going to Rome right now, right, to take out Caesar. We'll, we'll see you for dinner, right? I mean, they don't have a clue what's happening. The disciples didn't get it. They're completely wrong of why Jesus came. 
After three years with him, of hearing everything he said, watching every mood, demonstrating this upside-down kingdom time and time again, they still just want Jesus to wipe out their enemies. They want their kingdom established. Jesus didn't fit in their box, so they ignored everything that wouldn't fit. And everything that was close, they just jammed it inside like an overfilled suitcase. They just kept jamming him into their image for him of what they wanted him to be. No matter that everything he did and said contradicted that image. They liked their box and they were sticking to it. John Calvin, the great reformer, back in the 1500s, he wrote this. In 1560, in his commentary on Acts on this passage, he says, Marvelous is their rudeness. That, even w- that, that when as they had been diligently instructed by the space of three whole years, they've been with Jesus for three years, they betray no less ignorance than if they had never heard a word he said. There are as many errors in their question as words. <laughs> I love that. He says there are, no, there are more errors in their questions than wor- there are words in the question. And they were as ignorant of Jesus' teaching, Calvin says, than if they had never heard a single word Jesus said. Ouch. They were more clueless than what Jesus said than someone who didn't even know who Jesus was, is what Calvin is saying. Their vision of Jesus and following him was entirely of their own image of him of what they were convinced that he would do, of how they defined his kingdom, of how they wanted to follow him, of what they wanted or where they wanted to go. Jesus was supposed to destroy Romans they hated. Why? Because they hated the Romans, and therefore Jesus must hate them too. They made Jesus in their own image. Another way of saying it, they made Jesus like an idol that they could control to get what they want from it. I mean, it's crazy. And so we can look at the apostles here, and we can say, wow, those guys sure were ignorant. I can't believe how blind they were to what was so obvious. I mean, I would never do that in their position. I mean, why couldn't they actually just listen to the words Jesus said and trust him that what he was saying was true? They should let Jesus' words and actions define what they believe, right? I mean, let Jesus define who Jesus is, not their own expectations, not their bad theology or their desires for him, right? I mean, they're so dumb. We would never do that. We would never create such broken, rigid boxes that, and try to fit Jesus into our own. Right? Well, we're better than that today, aren't we? It's easy to judge others. Especially when we're prone to do the exact same thing. The old adage that when you're pointing at someone and judging, the three fingers coming back at you, it's so relevant in this situation. Because we're no better than the disciples. In fact, we're probably worse. I put a number of questions in the discussion questions this week that are on the website um, under sermons, sermon resources. Regarding this, to just a process with your groups or even on your own, but just to throw them out here, I mean, in what ways have we placed our own expectations on Jesus to bring our kingdom and not his? Where have we shaped Jesus into our own images? Or allowed our culture to determine how we see Jesus? Or allow our politics to define him? Or where do we let our theological boxes define Jesus rather than let Jesus determine our theology? In what ways is Jesus an idol for us today? Something we can control to 
do our bidding? Where is he like a divine vending machine where we just expect him to give us the answers that we want? If it can happen to the disciples who spent every day with him for three years, watched him die and rise again, who put their finger in the nail holes in his hand and in his side, if they can get Jesus completely wrong because they were so blinded by their own expectations and their theology and their desires, I'm pretty sure we can do it sometimes as well. I mean, it's amazing to me that whenever you talk to someone, no matter their theological or political persuasion, most Christians are convinced that Jesus is just like them, right? He believes the same things that we believe. He loves the same things we love. He hates the same things we hate. He calls good the same things we call good. He'd hang out with the same people we hang out and avoid the same people that we avoid. Oftentimes, it doesn't even matter what you read in Scripture, like reading the sentences to start the message with. You just simply don't see the stuff that doesn't line up with your desires or your image or your theology. We can easily just ignore the rest, whether consciously or subconsciously. Some examples. For for example, if someone is a pacifist, they're convinced that Jesus is a complete pacifist because he would never do violence to anyone of any kind or have any enemies even. It doesn't matter that Jesus speaks about judgment. And if you go to the book of Revelation, Jesus is the one carrying out the judgment with, with great violence even. Or if someone's a, you know, like a warmongering jingoist and, and their idolatry of patriotism makes them want to violently defeat all enemies at the drop of a hat, for them, Jesus is the same. He is a warrior who hates their enemies as much as they do. In fact, he probably hates them even more. If someone's a vegan, Jesus is probably a vegan, right? If someone doesn't drink alcohol, Jesus only drank, you know, non-alcoholic wine and maybe threw back a few old duels sometimes, right? If someone's a Trump supporter, they'd be convinced that Jesus would vote for Trump. If they're a Democrat who can't stand Republicans, they're probably convinced Jesus wouldn't associate with Republicans either. If they hate Democrats, they're probably convinced that Jesus would hate them too. And in fact, I've been amazed. There's been times where I've, I've shared about the need to love one another and to regardless of how we vote. And I've literally had people come to me uh, in the last couple of years and say, James, you do realize that Democrats aren't going to heaven, right? I'm like, what? Jesus draws lines according to American political spectrums and lines that are going on there? Like, I, I didn't know that. The same thing has happened when I spoke about different sins. I've had people literally come up and tell me, say, James, well, my Jesus wouldn't judge someone for that. I'm like, but I literally just read the Bible. And Jesus says he's judging that. That's what we just read. Like, it literally, that's what it says. Well, not my Jesus. I'm like, well, I don't know if your Jesus is the one in the Bible, right? Or one that you've contrived in some way. If someone is convinced that we should celebrate every possible freedom of, of sexual expression and gender identity of every single kind, then their Jesus would do the same. If someone's focused on creating the most comfortable possible life for themselves and their family and storing up great amounts of wealth for them, to, then they're convinced that Jesus is all about their happiness and their comfort. A couple years ago, this was just so prevalent. During the pandemic, we all just want to forget when it seems that as a church nationwide, we just kind of lost our minds. Um, things got so polarized. Half of all the pastors in America resigned because they couldn't hold things together as people were just at each other, even within the church, let alone outside of the church. And some were convinced that we should wear masks whenever in public, and were convinced that therefore Jesus would wear masks too. In fact, he'd probably wear two every time he was around a person, and one when he was in the car driving by himself, right? That that was the convinced, that's who Jesus was. In fact, it was a while back from that time I was meeting with a, 
uh, as a, a, a pastor's thing, and, and I was at a table with, with a pastor of one of the more progressive churches in our region that really caters to those on different spectrums and ideologies and things like that. And, uh, and he was talking to me, he's like, because people were sharing about how difficult it was during the pandemic to pastor people who are so polarized, and they were giving examples. He's like, you think you got it, bad guys. He's like, I was preaching recently, and I had my, it was my mask fell below my nose, and I was told I was a serial killer in that moment, and that I didn't value any. He was like, you think you conservative churches have a bad, us liberal churches is so much worse, right? He's like, everyone thinks they have the best understanding. Others were convinced that you should never wear a mask, that Jesus would never wear one, that we should never start a church during a pandemic ever, and they were convinced that Jesus would agree with them completely. Others believed that you got to be vaccinated. In fact, you should probably get a booster every three months, and others convinced you should never be vaccinated. Jesus would never hang out with, with, with vaccinated people. In fact, I know of churches today, today, that will not allow, un, that will not allow vaccinated people into their church, into a church. And of course, we all know that Jesus would hoard toilet paper too from Costco, right? Um, so, so how is this possible that we're able to have these views? Which Jesus are we serving? The one in Scripture? Or the one that we've pieced together out of our own backgrounds, our prejudices and desires and, and theological boxes that we carry? I've often met with Christians and afterwards just thought, man, I, I don't recognize their Jesus at all. I felt the same time as I reflect back upon my own life. The reality is we all do it, no matter what your leanings, your theology, your politics, your worldview. We are no better than the disciples. You see, for the disciples, they had a very clear idea of what the Messiah was supposed to look like. Long before they ever met Jesus, when Jesus came along, no matter what he said or did, it didn't change their conviction that the Messiah was supposed to deliver Israel and destroy Rome. That's what he must do. Return them to the most powerful nation of the world, and to the point that even Jesus saying the exact opposite of that again and again and again never changed their mind how could they spend three years with jesus and still not get it that his kingdom is not about destroying physical enemies but about destroying sin and evil not about seeking power but lifting up the poor and the broken and freeing captives not about selfish pursuit of power and obtaining wealth but about selflessness sacrifice and generosity he said it so many times over and over and over he died to prove it and they still don't get it how is that possible because it's what they wanted more than anything it's what they grew up believing that was that theological box that they had and no amount of other things even jesus saying it himself was going to change that box that they had developed so what about us where have we formed Jesus into our own image? Where have we stuffed him into our own pre-made boxes? That he would vote like we vote, act like we act, believe like we believe. Instead, we must be willing to do the hard work to humble ourselves. And acknowledge that we're probably off on some stuff too. Maybe a whole lot of stuff in some places. We need to go back and read his words. See who Jesus spends time with. Look at what he does, see what he values, and listen to what he says. And let Jesus tell us what he's like. And then believe him. Actually believe him when he tells us that that's really true. That's really what he values and what he says and what he's saying. Not say, oh, no, 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 no. No, but actually believe him. To learn from him what his kingdom is about. And to trust that he knows what he's talking about when he talks about his own kingdom. To tear down whatever boxes that we've erected of our own expectations. Let Jesus define for us 
who he is and what he stands for. Amen? We need to look afresh at how Jesus carried out his mission and built his kingdom. Look at how he spent time with his father and how he prayed and who he prayed for and what he prayed for and how he was reliant upon the Holy Spirit and all he did, how he felt about the poor, what he says about sex and money and endless other things in the scriptures, how he calls his disciples to live, what a sacrificial life looks like, to let Jesus define those things for us. And why is this so important? It's not just about bootstrapping and just trying to make ourselves better people, but this is our calling as a church. And the church, not Northview, but the church as a whole, has proven time and time again, going back to the original disciples, that we easily are tempted to mix up our own desires and our own interests with Jesus's, myself included. I find I do it all the time, as Scripture lays bare my heart. Yet as we see in the very next verse, we are called to be his witnesses. Verse 1-8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea, in Samaria, and as far as the remotest parts of the earth. Now we're going to sit in actually in verse 1-8 a little bit for, for, for a couple weeks, as there's a number of things here to unpack. And we're going to talk more about the power of the Holy Spirit and next week, and in fact most weeks going forward as we go through this book, because it's a lot of that. Um, but here, look at the disciples' calling. They will be witnesses of Jesus. The Greek word for witness is, is martis, which sounds a lot like another English word we know called martyr, right? A martyr is called a martyr because they died for Jesus while being martuses, right? That's where the word martyr comes from, because it is martuses that, were, that died, and therefore they are called martyrs, because their lives were a testimony, a witness of Jesus, and they died because they were witnesses of Jesus. They were, they were living a life testimony of who Jesus is and representing him to the world. They were martuses, therefore they were martyred. That's where that word comes from. They lived that life, and they told about who Jesus is. And this is the calling of the church, to be witnesses of Christ, to be martuses. That people will increasingly encounter Jesus as they encounter us. Our country is growing increasingly polarized, as we all recognize. 2024 is probably going to be the most polarized yet as we head into this election year. And we as followers of Jesus are to be his witnesses. To testify of our words and with our lives, the reality of Jesus be witnesses of his kingdom not of a donkey's kingdom or an elephant's kingdom or an eagle's kingdom of some kind but of his kingdom of god in every area of our life in family at work or church or, or what we put on social media or, and from a distance and this requires deep humility to be able to say lord where am i not a testimony of you where am I not being a good witness of you, Lord Jesus? Where have my own interests taken priority over yours? Where have I ignored your commands and not taken you seriously? Where am I trying to fit you into my box of who I want you to be, trying to conform you to my image rather than me conforming to yours? I'll be honest, as I was preparing for today, it, it took a very different turn than I expected. It was all supposed to be the power of the Holy Spirit, but... The more I prepped and just went on this, I just felt like we're supposed to stay in this place today of reflection and humility and processing with the Lord. 
as we're entering into the book of Acts and Jesus establishing his church. It's kind of, what is the, the true north of making sure it's on Jesus and not our kingdom, it's on his kingdom and not ours. And to ask, am I willing to be a witness? Am I willing to allow God to use me as his witness and conform my life to his? Am I open allowing Jesus to reshape my theology, my worldview, my politics, my convictions, things that I hold dear if they don't line up with who Jesus is and what he said and what he did? Am I willing to address the areas of my life that are out of alignment with Jesus in his ways? To acknowledge where I'm not reflecting him very well, where I'm not a good witness. I was reminded this this week of one of my greatest failures of parenting of re- recent, because I get a lot. Um, I, I, I honestly don't do this often, thankfully, but I lost it with one of my boys a couple weeks ago, um, maybe a few weeks ago. I was tired of their attitude and building, and it was just going on and on and on, and I overreacted. I, I just reacted in the moment. I, I yelled. I said some harsh words to him and sent him to his room. And immediately, I knew it was wrong. The whole table with our kids and my wife, everyone was just like, oh, because daddy doesn't do this, and um, I just lost it. I had verbally wounded my son, and in tears, I went to his room, apologized, I repented. I sat with him for a while, apologized like crazy, and we just laid there for a long time talking. And we were able to repair stuff, and there's grace, but I was so grieved in that moment. Even now, I mean, that, that, not just that I hurt him, but I would not reflected the Father's heart at all to him teaching him this idea that that's how we respond to bad behavior. And I was a terrible witness. I walked away and I was just praying, Jesus, I never want to do that ever again. Lord, make me the kind of person that doesn't do that. Deal with whatever's in my heart. Because I don't want to do that, Lord. I never want to reflect that way to you or to anyone else or any kid or anyone else in this world. I want to be a witness for Jesus. Amen? I want to be a martus. I used to want to be a martyr back in my crazy missionary days. No longer. Um, having kids changed that. Uh, I want to be a martus. Someone who reflects Jesus in how I live and how I love and how I think and what I believe in every area of my life. One of the most practical applications of this I know of would be to slowly read through the Gospels. I'd start with the book of Luke, you know, volume one of the book of Acts. And with each interaction of Jesus and his teaching, just Ask, do I really believe this? Is my life in alignment with the ways of Jesus? And not just talking about when he's performing miracles, although we're going to talk more about that and the power of the Holy Spirit and all the rest of it. But be honest, as you're going through, are there any areas where I'm simply ignoring or trying to fit Jesus into my box? Maybe in how he speaks about serving others. Maybe in how he talks about the poor or how he talks about sex or as he talks about sin. Or, or maybe I do it well in person, but I'm a complete jerk when I'm online. May we allow our lives and our thoughts to conform to him, not try to conform him to us. And that's what's so amazing about what Jesus did here in this passage, is that he left them in a place of misunderstanding completely who he is. I mean, could you imagine spending three years of your life training a select group of 12 people to carry on your mission and your ways, and then you literally die and resurrect to prove it's all true, and then you spend another 40 days convincing them, this is the message, go teach this message. And as you're saying goodbye... They convince you that they have no clue about anything you've ever said. In fact, the exact opposite of everything you came for. You'd delay your flight, I think. 
You'd be so discouraged. But Jesus wasn't. He had no plan B. This was plan A. And he left completely convinced and confident that it was going to work, even though they were a mess. Why? Because the next passage says that he says, wait till the Holy Spirit comes, and I trust the Holy Spirit will bring truth. And the Holy Spirit will set you straight. So this isn't just about bootstrapping it. It's not just our own effort, our own work. We aren't Jesus. We're never going to live perfectly according to his ways this side of eternity. The Spirit will empower us like it did the disciples to continue to grow, to shape our heart, to shape our minds, and shape our wills to be witnesses for Jesus. The Spirit will enable us to allow God to use us in our weakness, in our brokenness, in our bad theology, in our, in our, our broken politics for us to conform and shape more to his, more and more. But we have to have willing hearts. He doesn't need perfect people, just willing ones. Willing to be humble. Willing to seek transformation, to, for God to renew our minds, to use us for his purposes. Amen? Let's pray as we finish. Just reflect with the Lord. Lord, you've called us to be your witnesses. With our words and with our lives, we are to reflect you to the world, Lord Jesus. Yet we acknowledge that so often we are so far off. So Jesus, soften our hearts. Humble us. Reveal now and in the coming days and weeks areas where we're out of alignment with you and your thoughts and your ways, Lord Jesus. Show us where... Maybe we're holding on to worldviews or opinions or judgments that are based on our own prejudices or, or the boxes that we've grown up with, Lord God. And we projected them onto you. Jesus, humble us before you. Realign us. Use these broken vessels, Father, and shape them more and more into your way. Humble us, Father. Just take a minute. Just sit with the Holy Spirit. See if there's any area He wants to reveal to our heart. Where we may be out of alignment with His way, His will. Just let Him speak. worship team is going to come up now and Jesus has called us to be witnesses for him to go forth as his hands and his feet to demonstrate his life and his love and his ways to the world he didn't have a plan B his plan A is us 
Is he dumb? Humanity is his plan A. Through the Holy Spirit, going forth as we represent him to the world around us. We're going to finish with a, a song called Use Me. It's an old classic. It's, it's very simple. It's just if you can use anything, Lord, you can use me. This repeats again and again. As we do this, just in your heart, say, Lord, I want you to use me. I want to be a vessel for your glory, Father. I want to be about your kingdom, not my own, not my parties, not my theologies, not my worldviews, but yours, Lord Jesus. Use me, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Empower me to, to shift, to change, to represent you, Lord. Weed out the areas where I'm in conflict with who you are. And Jesus, use my hands, my feet, my mouth, Lord. By your spirit, Lord.